Well, again, Stephanie, we thank God for you. Thank you for your testimony, um, for glorifying our Lord through your sharing. We're encouraged to hear about your uh, the faithful ministry of your brother and sharing the gospel to you and praying for you and to see the fruits of his labor uh, pour out in your salvation. We're an encouragement to all of us as we pray for uh, members of our family as they do not know Christ and we continue to endeavor to share the gospel to them and to pray for them. Well, Stephanie, we thank God for you and look forward to a lifetime of ministry together here at Cornerstone. Well, as it was announced, um, our family will be leaving this Friday um, to go to Ireland for seven days. And then we'll meet up with the Hans who are leaving next week and to spend one week with the Smiths at, at Czech Republic. Just to share a little bit about our missionaries, Tim Coyle. I met him actually back in 1989. So about 14, 15 years I've known him. Back in the day, he was a uh, very uh, a wild guy riding around in motorcycles in, in Southern California. We share uh, doctrinal convictions in terms of we're both Armenian and very charismatic. We lost touch and we met, up, met back up at the uh, Master Seminary in the lounge of all places. And it turned out God worked in our hearts to make right turns in theology. And we ended up at Master's together. And he's been ministering in England for several years now, and God has led him and his family, wife, um, wife Barbara, okay, Barbara and three children, Aiden, Owen, and Molly, to a church plant in um, Cabin, Ireland, and we're going to go there for a week and spend time with them. Tim, if you know him, he's got such a heart for God. He's one of those guys, he's got a tremendous heart for the Lord. You talk to him, and you talk about... Three things, scripture, theology, and soccer, right? <laughs> Those are the things you talk about with him, mostly scripture and theology. I think he's a modern-day Puritan. He's got one of those singular hearts for the things of God. And when we visited him two years ago, we stayed up till 2, 3 in the morning just talking about the things of the Lord. So look forward to our time together. And Peter Smith, he's a veteran missionary, missionary to Philippines for five years, one of the only foreign missionaries in Czech Republic to be ever invited to be an elder of a Czech Republic church. He started a church plant in Kladno, uh, Czech Republic. And the Hans and us be going there to minister with him, encourage him, and to be encouraged by him. Peter, his whole family, is just a godly family. John Smith is a pastor and elder up at Faith Bible Church. He's come and ministered to our body several times. In fact, we spent... Hans and us, we've spent um, evenings with his uh, parents, John Sr. and Mrs. Smith, and godly family, just uh, devoted to the Lord. And Peter Smith is an evangelist at heart. He's a warrior. I've heard tales of him, like, sharing the gospel on the bus in the Czech language. I mean, getting the tracks out, every opportunity on the subway, sharing the gospel and spreading the faith. So I know, man, I'll be just... Uh, challenged by his example by spending time with him. Now, why are we going? What is our mission? Our first mission, first reason is to encourage the missionaries. It's uh, what Pastor Ben talked about a few weeks ago, the Epaphroditus ministry, where we're going to just encourage these beloved saints and fellowship with them. You know what, guys? Being a pastor, it's lonely. Nobody wants to, you know, hang out with pastors, Right? Nobody wants to fellowship with them. Doubly so if you're a foreigner. Not only do they have that pastor-congregation separation, they're also from another culture, another language even. So loneliness is a huge issue. We've asked them, what can we do? How can we encourage you? And they've said, we just want to talk to someone who's a Christian, who agrees with us theologically. We just want you to come and we just want to talk to you Please drink a lot of coffee. We just want a fellowship. That's our, our, one of our top priorities, to encourage them, to pray for them. And, and we've prepared gifts from our whole church. Uh, gifts for Peter, Sonia, Barbara, and Tim and their children. And we want to extend the love of our church through tangible gifts to their families. We want to minister with them and minister so that they can rest. Two years ago when I preached that at Grace Community Fellowship for Tim, Tim said in four years, the first time he ever sat in someone else's preaching at his church. 
So I was able to relieve him of his ministry by taking his place. And Bob and I will be doing that so that they can rest. Maybe having a date, date night. We'll babysit their children so they can have some fellowship to themselves. Second reason we're going is to unite our hearts with them. There are missionaries. We're in this for the long haul. Not for a few years, but decades. I hope and pray that our partnership in the gospel will last until Christ returns. That will be one mind and one spirit, one purpose. And how do we do that? By the elders going and by observing their lives and ministry. By sharing our lives and our ministry with them. And by uniting our doctrine, just conforming that, our philosophy of ministry, our, so that our hearts will beat as one. That's why we want to go. So that it will trickle down to the rest of the body. And third reason we're going is we want our church to be stretched in terms of, of global missions. We want the whole body of Cornerstone to see the great call of the gospel ministry to this whole world. And how will that happen? Is by God stretching our hearts, the leadership. If God stretches my heart, expands my vision, if God would open Bob's eyes, my eyes, and allow us to see what God, God's heart towards the world, then it will trickle down to the rest of the body. So that is why we're going. It must start with us. Bob and I talked about in our past staff retreat that for prayer to be a priority at Cornerstone, we need to be men of prayer. For evangelism to be a priority, for missions to be a priority of Cornerstone, then Bob and I, we need to lean forward and take the lead. And we want to go and have our hearts be stretched by seeing missions done firsthand. Those are the three reasons why we're going. What we ask you, as we've asked you already, to pray for us. These are uncertain times. But we are not afraid because God is sovereign. Our Lord said in Matthew 10, Fear not the one who will take away the body. Fear the one who will take away the souls. Take away your soul. Acts 5.41 The apostles rejoiced when they were, they considered, they were considered worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. They, were, they rejoiced because they suffered. And we're studying in our flock Bible study, right? Philippians, Paul says, For me to, to live is Christ. To die is gain. It's a good thing to die. So, we're going by faith. You know, we're encouraged, we're excited. Just in case, Surin and I are writing our wills this week. Just in case. So, if, if there's anything you guys want, you let us know. <laughs> we'll write it in this week. But, we're just excited. I figure, as, if, you wanna, if we go and leave this earth, that's the way to go. While you're serving Christ, right? I might tell my flock, I would hate to die like slipping on a bar of soap while taking a shower. You guys are all at my funeral and you guys, man, like James died, like, you know, at home. That's kind of sad. But if, man, James died while preaching the gospel around the world, man, I'd be an encouraging funeral, would it not? So, that's our first prayer. Second prayer is that we would be an encouragement to them. We would hate to go there and discourage them, right? That would nullify the whole purpose of our missions. So hope, pray that we will be an encouragement to our missionaries, and I am certain that we will be encouraged, that we will return our whole families. I mean, what a precious thing for Derek and Lindsay to see at their age, see like veteran missionaries serving in the field. Man, that's, it's going to be awesome for all of us. Pray that we pray and we know we'll be encouraged, and that God would really challenge us, that our responsibility is not just for Cornerstone. We have a stewardship before God, who is a missionary God, we have a stewardship for everyone who is lost in this generation. We are responsible to get the gospel out to them, that God would stretch our hearts, and we would see what God sees in terms of the global imperative to get the gospel out to this world. Well, I look forward to uh, um, seeing you guys in three weeks. We'll be joining you for Resurrection Sunday, and we have, we'll have a good report, I'm sure, of all that God has done in our midst, but I'll be sharing from the pulpit that Lord's Day, as I will be as well. Well, let's go to our text for this morning. John chapter 8. We have reached the conclusion of this chapter. The conclusion of our Lord's remarkable dialogue with the leaders of Israel. It has been, I think, eight or nine sermons studying this dialogue. It started in chapter 7, verse 14, and all the way to verse 59 of chapter 8. It is this 
heated and often vigorous debate between Christ and His accusers. Again, this is all occurring within the temple courts of Jerusalem. At the end of the Feast of Tabernacles, in verse 14 to the midway point, starting in verse 37, all the way to now, they're at the last day of the feast. It is a very important portion of the Scriptures. And to give structure to our study, I've categorized this passage into two simple sections. Verses 48 through verse 50, we find our Lord's example. Verses 48 through 50. Verses 51 through 59, we find our Lord's four unique claims. Verses 51 through 59, our Lord's four unique claims. Let's begin with our Lord's incredible example in the face of His enemies. While they were accusing Him, vilifying Him, maliciously slandering Him, our Lord's response, His example, was one of graciousness and kindness. He is repeatedly attacked, maligned, They hit him below the belt time and time again and they hunger for more. From the onset of the discussion, they were never interested in the truth because Christ tells them the truth and they don't want any part of it. In fact, Christ says last passage, if I told you lies, you would believe me. But you reject me because I tell you the truth. Which reveals that they were never interested in truth. All they were interested in was attacking Christ, accusing Him, turning the tide of the public against Christ, and somehow catch Him in His words, arrest Him, and murder Him. Their dialogue is replete with attacks against Christ. Personal slander, chapter 7, verse 20, the crowd answered, you have a demon. Flat out contradiction, chapter 8, verse 13, your testimony is not true. Slanderous insinuation, chapter 8, verse 19, where is your father? You are lying. Sneering sarcasm, chapter 8, verse 22, will he kill himself? Is he going to commit suicide because he's going away? Today's passage, verse 48, outrageous condemnation. It is offensive. As a, as a believer reading this, I was pers- this happened 2,000 years ago, and I'm sitting here in my office, and I'm personally offended at the slanderous, offensive accusations levied against Christ. Right. I, mean, I, I think it kind of reveals what's in your heart. If someone talks about your brother or your sister, are you hurt? If someone vilifies your mom, are you offended? If someone attacks you, does it rile you up emotionally? Well, how do believers respond when our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who is sinless, who is a thrice holy God, completely perfect, without blemish or defect, is is accused of having a demon, of being possessed by a demon, called a Samaritan, meaning a half-breed, insinuating that he has an illegitimate background, birth-wise, or that he's a heretic. I mean, they're hitting below the belt, And finally, verse 59 of chapter 8, open violence. They were still building the temple. Herod's temple wasn't completed at this time. There were were stones all over the place. Construction taking place. Excuse our dust. And so there were rocks everywhere, and they were picking up rocks, ready to for open violence against the Lord. Words were not enough for them. We are shocked by their arrogance and their hateful, uh, vicious words. Our Lord was right. John 7, 7. His, his family said, why don't you go down to Jerusalem and reveal yourself as a public figure? And Christ said, the world cannot hate you, but the world hates me. Christ was right. The world hates Him because He testifies about it that its works are evil. Our Lord told these men in verse 47, the reason you do not hear my words is that you're not of God. He has just said in verse 46, Can anyone convict me of any sin? 
Can anyone reveal to me any sin in my life? They could not. The reason you cannot hear the words of God because you are not of God. And then their response was predictable. He says, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and that you have a demon too? They were so filled with rage at the Lord for the way he exposed her hypocrisy that they stooped to name-calling. I mean, what a ridiculous charge. They couldn't name a single sin that our Lord was guilty of. Not a single sin before his enemies. And yet, they accuse him of being demon-possessed. This is always the last resort of someone who is losing an argument to personally attack it is the third time in the Gospel of John that the Lord, that our Lord is charged of being possessed by a demon. The oldest trick in the book, at hominem attacks, attacks against a person. This attack of being demon possessed, of being a Samaritan, our Lord was used to that. It's one in a laundry list of false accusations levied against Christ. I'm not stretching it to say that our Lord is the most vilified and was the most wrongly accused person in the history of the world. They lashed out every attack possible towards Him. In fact, this was prophesied in the Old Testament. Remember Genesis 3.15, God said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offsprings and hers. Meaning the offspring of Satan. There will be enmity, hatred towards the offspring of the woman, which is Christ. Psalm 109.25 I am an object of scorn to my accusers. When they see me, they shake their heads. A messianic verse. Isaiah 50 verse 6, another messianic verse. I offered my back to those who beat me. My cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. Isaiah 53.3 He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Our Lord knew that part of His incarnation would involve suffering in the hands of His enemies. Matthew 16.21 He explained to His disciples that the Son of Man must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law. It's a mistaken notion to think that Christ only suffered during the cross. He suffered throughout His life. I mean, we see the precursor of His suffering after His first sermon. Right? If I had a response like that after my first sermon, I don't know if I'd continue in ministry. Right? In Luke chapter 4, 28 and 29, after our Lord gives His first sermon, you know what they do? They were furious when they heard this. They shook their fists at Him. They got up, drove Him out of town, took Him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw Him down the cliff. That was a reaction of the religious leaders of Israel when they heard the first sermon given by Christ. Our Lord suffered from His enemies and accusers throughout His ministry. Matthew 12.24 The Pharisees said, It is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, the lord of the flies, the god, the god Baal, that this fellow drives out demons. John 10.20 He is demon possessed. Not only that, he's raving mad. Therefore, Matthew 22.15 The Pharisees laid out traps to trap him in his words. Luke 20, 20, they sent spies pretending to be honest, earnest seekers, questioning him, trying to trap him in his teachings. Matthew 26, 59, the chief priests, the whole Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court of Israel gathered together looking for false evidence against Jesus that they might put him to death. Even his own family, Mark 3.21, says that when his family heard about our Lord going into ministry, they went to take charge of him, for they said he is out of his mind. So here, is, here it is again in verse 48. They're accusing him again 
The same old accusation that he is a heretic, a half-breed, and that he is possessed by a demon. And how does our Lord respond to his attackers? Because he is truth. He knows it is false. In fact, he is completely holy. If anyone had the right to defend himself, it is the Lord. You and I, we don't have that right. Anybody accuses of, uh, accuses us of hypocrisy, our response is, you're right. We are hypocrites. We can never say, can anyone accuse us of, of, uh, us of sin? We can't say that because we are sinners. But Christ had that legitimate authority. But how does Christ respond? He beautifully responds in a simple denial. I have not a demon. He does not belabor the point. He does not present arguments, present evidences, bring testimonials. Okay, Peter, step up. Do I have a demon? No. Okay, John, step up. Andrew, one after the other. No. Instead, he just points to his life. Verse 46. He did that in verse 46, pointing out the negative. How, can anyone convict me of sin? Any negative. In verse 49, here he points to the positive. I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. That is so awesome. There is no retaliation on our Lord's part. No name calling in return. All day, they've been accusing him. All day, they've been criticizing him, vilifying him. And yet, he's not, there's no anger. He's not striking back. Our Lord responds to this monstrous accusation by denying the charge and claims, I honor my Father. That His mission is not a self-serving one. But His mission is to honor God. Verse 50, I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and He is the judge. In all His teaching, this was true. He does not teach to glorify Himself. He is not seeking fame. Our Lord is not seeking glory for Himself. He was willing to submit to their reproach, to be despised, to accept their taunts, their accusations, and all along He never vindicated Himself. But He says, there is one who seeks to glorify me, and that is God the Father. He entrusts Himself to God and God's sovereignty. God will take care of my reputation. God seeks my welfare and honor. I commit my life into His hands without attempting my own vindication. What a beautiful example of our Lord Jesus Christ in verses 48 through 50. At the end of the message, I kind of tie it back and going to apply to us how it applies to us in terms of how we respond to when the world accuses us, attacks us, uh, vilifies us. But for now, let's continue in our passage and go to 50, verse 51, and we'll see from verses 51 through 59 our Lord's four unique claims. Claim number one, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Note those words, saints. Truly, truly. It indicates our Lord's authority. indicates that it's a fundamental fact, an absolute certainty. Our Lord wants to emphasize the truthfulness of the statement. That what is, what is being said is of critical importance. And in the Greek, the word death is emphatic. It begins the sentence. In the Greek, it literally reads, death, never he will see, ever. In the Greek, there are two negatives. Death, he will never see, ever. What is the meaning? It means that the genuine believer will never experience death, nor see death. Now, listen to that again. It means a true Christian will never experience death, nor see death will never know death, nor partake of death, never face the condemnation of death, never experience the terror, the hurt, the pain, and the suffering of death. A true Christian 
will never experience the anguish of being separated from God. Never experience separation from God's glory, God's beauty, and God's perfection of life in heaven. That's what the believer, in a flash, quicker than the blinking of an eye, the follower passes from this world into the next. From this world into the presence of Christ. The true believer never ceases to experience life and never loses consciousness. True Christian, one moment he's in this world, next moment he's with Christ. That instant. Our Lord said this. And Martha was coming to him in John 11. We'll study that in a few months. And Martha was tearing because her brother had died, Lazarus. And our Lord was weeping as well. John 11.35 Saying that when a saint, a believer dies, we are to be sorrowful because of the pain, the loss. But for the believer, he is with God. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. What does that mean? In the instant of a believer's death, he or she is with Christ. In that instant. Isn't that awesome? On his deathbed, D.L. Moody, the great evangelist, exclaimed, Earth is receding. Heaven is approaching. This is my crowning day. Note that the believer, verse 51, will never see death. Verse 52, will never taste death. Why Hebrews 2.9? Because Christ, through grace, tasted death for everyone. Pastor Ben talked about this last week in second hour, but we do see him who has been made for a little while, little for a little while, Lord and the angels, Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. That is what our Lord promises here. Christians like that, we pass from life to life. That is the experience of a true Christian. That's what we're studying in Philippians, is it not? That's the, that was Paul's dilemma. He could taste it. He could taste heaven. He could literally taste being with Christ. For me, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Because to be apart from the body is to be present with Christ. So in a sense, you know, and I haven't experienced this yet, where I've gone to a funeral and it's been encouraging, or a believer's, a true believer's funeral. I don't think I've experienced that yet. But I believe that a funeral is the time of greatest worship, the greatest joy. Yes, there'll be sorrow for family, Sorrow for friends. But, as a fellow believer, there'll be a part of me, I'll be envious. Because I know, he or she, in the instant, he or she never tasted death, never experienced death, went from life, consciousness, to reality of heaven. And as I stand there, I think my, my worship will be so much more intense and somewhat envious of that believer's present experience of being with the risen Lord. Now notice in verse 51, there is an important condition to escape death. Our Lord says, if anyone keeps, means to watch over, if anyone holds to, if anyone obeys with diligence, same idea as John 8.31, if anyone abides in my teachings, it is that continual submission to God's word, it's the idea of fixing one's heart upon the, upon the words of Christ. idea of keeping it with all diligence. If any man, if any person is persistent in obeying Christ, they need not fear death because they will never taste it, never see it. Well, the reaction by the Jewish leaders was swift and sharp. They were now certain. They were just speculating earlier. But in verse 52, they're certain now he's possessed by a demon. Verse 52, now we know that you have a demon. Because Abraham died as did the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. 
Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? For them, even the godliest men such as Abraham died. Even the prophets. What is our Lord claiming here? Is He saying that He is greater than Abraham? Greater than the prophets? Claim number 2, verse 54 Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say He is our God. Our Lord is claiming, I'm not making this claim by myself. God is. I'm not out to honor or glorify myself. If that were true, it would amount to nothing. That is false glory. My Father, your God, whom you claim is your God, glorifies me. When did God glorify Christ? When did this happen? Listen to Second Peter 1.17. Here is Peter, an eyewitness, to when this happened, saying, He received, meaning Jesus, He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to Him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son, whom I love, with him I am well pleased. When, the John, when John the Baptist baptized Christ, and an audible voice was declared, declaring that Jesus Christ was God's Son, and that God the Father is pleased, a public declaration that God was glorifying and honoring Christ. Claim number three, verse 56. Here he is answering their question that was raised in verse 53. Are you greater than Abraham? Our Lord answers, verse 56, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and it was glad. Abraham, for the Jewish people, held a unique place. He was their physical father. Every faithful Jew Every ethnic Jew could tie their lineage, link their lineage back to Abraham. He was a man whom God called and blessed. He was a man whom God gave His unconditional promise to. Bless Him, His children, and all the nations. He was the one when God called Him to leave His home, leave His friends, His employment, His country. What was Abraham's response he believed God and he left. In Genesis, Genesis 15.6, God credited to him righteousness. That is righteousness. Our Lord says, the father of your nation, rejoice that he would see my day. He saw it and he was glad. You look at the Greek here in verse 56, and it is so much more expressive and emphatic than our English translation. The Greek intimates that Abraham looked forward with joy and he was exalted in the sight of it. That when he saw Christ, the day of the coming of Christ, he was exceedingly glad. Well, the question is, how did Abraham see Christ's day? How did he do this? And when did he do this? Well, the first how is through God's word. Genesis 12, when God promised Abraham at the age of 90 that he would bear a son and he had Isaac, through that promised, promised son that they would have numerous descendants, as many as stars on the sky at night, sands in the desert, and that all nations would be blessed through him, through that promise he saw Christ. Secondly, through faith in God's promises, he saw Christ. Hebrews 11.13 All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. They saw and welcomed them from a distance by faith. The whole chapter, Hebrews 11, it's about faith. Thirdly, when did Abraham... Rejoice. We can't be certain here. The Old Testament record is not complete. 
doesn't tell us exactly when this happened, but I have to believe it is tied to Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac in Genesis 22. We talked about that last week. God told Abraham, offer your son whom you love as a sacrifice in verse 1 of chapter 22. Abraham makes a three days journey to Jerusalem, Mount Moriah. He has a fire in his hand, a sword in his other hand. Isaiah, Isaac is carrying the wood. Isaac asks, Father, we have all the instruments for a sacrifice, but where is the sacrifice? Abraham says, God will provide the sacrifice. It's true. God provided Isaac. If he sacrifices Isaac, God has provided. If Isaac dies, Abraham believed in the, that God was able to resurrect him from death. Or Abraham hoped that God would provide a substitute. As his arms were raised with a sword in hand, Isaac bound in obedience to his father. As he was about to slay his own son whom he loved, the child of promise, an angel of God comes down and says, Do not lay a hand on that boy. God has provided an alternate sacrifice. God has tested your faith and He knows that your faith is true and your love is true. In Genesis 22:14, Abraham called that place Peniel, meaning the Lord will provide. In verse 15, the angel calls Abraham a second time. And I believe this is when it happened. The angel calls Abraham again and he said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord. And this is the angel of the Lord. A Christophany in the Old Testament. Jesus Christ, the angel of God, revealed in the Old Testament because he swears by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will bless you and your descendants. And verse 18, all nations on earth we blessed because you have obeyed me. I believe it is at this time Abraham saw forward and saw the substitute, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And it's at this point he welcomed it. He rejoiced by faith. Our Lord is saying Abraham looked forward Abraham approved of me 2,500 years before I came. He understood why? Because he was a man of faith. Because his God was God the Father. He understood who I am and what I am here to do. And when he saw that, Abraham rejoiced. Imagine the impact this claim made upon these men. I mean, their eyes were bulging. Their mouths were, were wide open. They were staggering at our Lord's in their perspective, audacious claim. The Jews said to, them, said to him, verse 57, You are not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Here is that climactic I am statement in verse 58. Through his discourse with the leaders of Israel, in chapter 736, he said, I am the living water. In 812, he had said, I am the light of the world. And now, in 858, he declares that before Abraham, I am. It is the claim to, of divinity, the claim to be pre-existent, that he was always existing. It is the claim that he was alive before Abraham was born. That He is above and beyond time. That He is eternal. That He is God Himself. He is the great I Am, standing upon the earth in a human body, declaring Himself to be God. Well, verse 59, the response is one of uh, out-of-control rage. They picked up stones to throw at Him. But our Lord hid Himself and He went out of the temple. What a climax it reaches with our Lord's declaration as He responds to His accusers in this dialogue. 
Well, a few final thoughts for us. Quite a bit of application for us because, you know, as Stephanie was sharing that, it really hit home for me. Our goal is not just to study, but that it would reach our hearts in obedience. The first thing I want to apply to all of us is for us to consider the example of Christ. Consider the example of Christ. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. We'll look at that passage together. This chapter is important because Peter tells us one of the purposes of Christ's suffering. Peter identifies himself as a witness to the sufferings of Christ. And then in verse 21, he says, To this you were called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you what? An example. Why did Christ suffer for us? That He might be an example for us. So that we might follow in His steps. Now what was that example? Verse 22, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. Verse 23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued to entrust himself to him who judges righteously. What is the example of our Lord and before his accusers? That is the example for us. When we are attacked because of our faith, when people judge us, malign us, vilify us. When they accuse us of sin and evil because of the gospel, how are we to respond? Go, go back a few verses to verse, verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Go to verse 15. This is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. How are we to respond? What was the, what was the example of Christ? It was living a godly life. How do we silence our critics? By doing what is right. This is the believer's most effective tool for evangelism. The single greatest tool for evangelism is by living a right life. In the midst of of intense scrutiny, anger-filled words, we are called to live godly, honorable, right lives. This is the example of Christ. This and this alone silences the critics. We are not to retaliate. We're not to argue back, give defense. We are to submit ourselves to God the Father and commit to honorable lives. Then that provides the platform for the gospel message. It has a negative and a positive impact. The negative is that it silences the critics. It disarms them. It disarms their anger. And the positive is that it brings men to believe in Christ. Why? Because they see the transforming power of the gospel in a person's life. They see a true change because they see a person attacked and they don't fight back. During World War II, um, there there was a missionary couple, Herb and Ruth Klingen, And their young son spent three years in a Japanese prison camp in the Philippines. Mr. Herb Klingen records in his diary, recorded in his diary, how their captors murdered, tortured, and starved to death many of their fellow prisoners. He wrote how the camp commandant was Konishi, a man who was most hated and feared by everyone. He invented ways to abuse the prisoners. One method that he employed was that he increased the food ration, but he gave them 
palai, unhusked rice. Now, this eating this rice with this razor-sharp outer shell would cause intestinal bleeding, so it would kill, kill them in hours. They were given no tools to remove the husks. They will do the job manually, grain by grain. By pounding the grain and rolling it by hand, it consumed more calories than the rice would supply. It was a cruel and slow death sentence. Konishi had planned to gun down all the remaining prisoners on January 25th, 1945, knowing that the U.S. forces were coming onto the Philippines. But General Douglas MacArthur was a day ahead. He came on the 24th. He liberated them from captivity. Years later, they learned that Konishi had been found working as a groundskeeper at a Manila golf course. He was put on trial for his war crimes. And he was, he was hanged. Before his execution, he professed conversion to Christianity. And he said that he was deeply moved and affected by the testimony of the Christian missionaries that he had persecuted. The example of these Christians not retaliating, being persecuted, yet living honorable lives, had an impact upon this callous, cold-hearted murderer. Where years later, when God visited him, his heart was soft to the gospel, and he was saved. The power of a righteous life. So when we are persecuted, when we are attacked by our family members, First Peter 3, you're married to an unbelieving husband, how do you witness to him? By submitting yourself to God. By the purity and reverence of your life. Before your family members, God will use that to humble their hearts, to open their, their hearts for the gospel. That's the first application. Second application. Um, again, our Lord suffered throughout His life, throughout His ministry. He was hated by this world. He was rejected. He was cast off. He was scorned by the world. Even those who were closest to Him rejected Him and turned against Him. He suffered and He endured to encourage us. Hebrews 12.3 And then in Hebrews 13.12 it says, So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through His own blood. Therefore, let us go to Him outside the camp and bear the reproach He endured. Now, Pastor Ben preached this last week. Man, I, I love to hear others preach. I was so blessed by Pastor Ben's teaching last week. Now I was thinking, sitting there last week, I was thinking, milestone men and women are so blessed. You know, I felt like, man, if I had a pastor like Ben when I was 20 years old, I could have been somebody, you know. <laughs> There's hope for me, man. When I was 20 years old as a Christian, for like next seven years, I didn't have a single solid teaching for like seven years. I mean, he was exhorting us and I exhort you. Our Lord, they, con they wouldn't... They crucified Christ outside the city gates because they considered Him a murderer, a criminal. They didn't consider Him worthy of, a, of death within the city walls of Jerusalem. They threw His body outside the gates and reproached Him and scorned Him. And they rejected Him. The writer of Hebrews says, Let us go to Him outside the camp and bear the reproach He endured. This world rejected Christ. They saw Him as a dirty criminal. Unwant he was unwanted by them. Now, are we going to try to live within the city walls? Are we going to try to befriend those who rejects, rejected our Lord? Are we now going to call a truce and compromise for the sake of our personal reputation, our personal comfort? 
if we're following Christ, he was rejected, let us also go to him outside the city walls and bear the reproach that he endured. Bear it with Christ. And then final one, Jesus' claim, if anyone in verse 51 keeps my word, he will never see death. Believers, we have no fear of death. True Christians. Right. That's a sign of our faith and the world's fear of death is a sign of their condemnation. War, rumors of war, disease, rumors of disease. Believers, we, not, we do not fear because we won't know death. That won't be a part of our experience. At the blink of an eye, we will be with Christ and be with Him forever. Let's take that to heart. We live in dangerous times. Let's live with courage, trusting in our Lord. Our Father, we are thankful to You for You do not just teach us truth. You embody truth by Your life. Lord, the most powerful teaching tool is indeed modeling And you model truth for us that is overwhelming to us. That though you you had complete authority, though you were their creator, though you had power of life and death in your hands over these men, you chose to submit yourself to your Father, to our Father, and you endured the suffering in the hands of sinful men. And you bared it that you might be an example for us, that we might follow in your footsteps. Lord, may this uh, example hang powerfully upon our souls, that when people accuse us, people reject us, when we are persecuted for the faith, may we submit also to our Father, may we humbly commit to living right lives and we humbly go outside of the camp, outside of the city walls to bear the reproach that Christ bared so that through our, our submission to you, you might use us as tools for the salvation of the lost salvation of those who are closest to us, our family members, our friends and this world Lord we thank you for Jesus, his His truth and His glory and His humility declares that He is indeed God. As we have come to gaze, when we go home to change, change who we are, but as we we longingly see the true Lord of the Scriptures. Pray all these things in Your Son's name. Amen.